From the Book of Proverbs, Part 1. Charles Bridges, 1794-1869 Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom, Proverbs 13:10. Most accurately is contention here traced to its proper source. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife, Pro 28:25. All the crudeness of the day, all the novelties of doctrine producing contention, 1t1-4. 2T223 originate in the proud swelling of the fleshly mind, call 218, 1T6-3, 4. Men scorn the beaten track. They must strike out a new path. Singularity and extravagance are primary charms. They are ready to quarrel with everyone, who does not value their notions as highly as they do. The desire of preeminence, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not, 3 Jo, 9. Revolt from authority, Noom 12-2, or sound doctrine, 2T4-3,4, party spirit, with the pride of knowledge and gifts, 1Co3-3, 4 with 4-8 all produce the same results. Is it too much to say, that vainglory hath lighted up all the sinful contentions, that have ever kindled in the church? We must indeed contend for the faith, Gal 2-5, first 2-2, Jude, 3, though it be with our own compromising brethren, Gal 2-11. But even here how yet imperceptibly made pride insinuate itself under the cover of glorifying God. Truly is it the inmost coat, which we put on first and put off last. This mischievous principle spreads in families, or among friends. Some point of honor must be maintained, some affront must be resented, some rival must be crushed or eclipsed, some renowned character emulated, or some superior equaled and surpassed. Even in trifling disputes between relatives or neighbors, perhaps between Christians, each party contends vehemently for his rights, instead of satisfying himself with the testimony of his conscience, and submitting rather to be misunderstood and misjudged, than to break the bond of the divine brotherhood, 1 Co 6-7. In the wide field of the world we may well ask, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come thee not from this lust, Jam 4-1? Often has wounded pride, Jud 12-1, even without any proved injury, 2 Key 14-10 brought destructive contention upon a land. The proud man conceives himself wise enough. He asks no counsel, and thus proves his want of wisdom. But with the modest, well-advised, there is the wisdom that is from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, Jam 3:17, with 3 colon 14 16. Many a rising contention has it quelled, Gen 13-8, Jed 8-1-3, Act 6-1-6. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves, Phi 2-3. Christian wisdom will keep us within our own line, knowing our own measure and bounds, 2 Co 10 13-16, and whatever be our place, parts, or gifts, humble, active, loving, constant, thankful, in the improvement of them. Dash. Before destruction the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility Proverbs 18-12. Surely this repetition, like our Lord's often repeated parallel, was intended to deepen our sense of their importance. It is hard to persuade a man that he is proud. Everyone protests against this sin. Yet who does not cherish the viper in his own bosom? Man so little understands, that dependence upon his God constitutes the creature's happiness, and that the principle of independence is madness, and its end is destruction, Gen 3-5,6. The haughty walk on the brink of a fearful precipice, only a miracle preserves them from instant ruin. The security of the child of God is, when he lies prostrate in the dust. 
If he soar high, the danger is imminent, though he be on the verge of heaven, 2 Co 12 1-7. The danger to a young Christian lies in an over-forward profession. The glow of the first love, the awakened sensibility to the condition of his perishing fellow sinners, ignorance of the subtle working of inbred vanity, the mistaken zeal of injudicious friends, all tends to foster self-pleasing. Oh! Let him know, that before honor is humility. In the low valley of humiliation special manifestations are realized. Enlarged gifts, and apparently extending usefulness, without growing more deeply into the humility of Christ, will be the decline, not the advancing of grace. That undoubtedly is the most humbled spirit, that has most of the spirit of Christ. The rule of entry into his school, the first step of admission to his kingdom, is learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, Matt 11 29. The spring of this humility is true self-knowledge. Whatever may be seen of a man externally to his advantage, let him keep his eye looking within, and the real sight of himself must lay him low. When he compares his secret follies with his external decency, what appears to his fellow creatures with what he knows of himself, he can but cry out, Behold I am vile. I abhor myself. Job 44. The seed of this precious grace is not in words, meltings, or tears, but in the heart. No longer will he delude himself with a false conceit of what he is not, or with a vain conceit of what he has. The recollection who maketh thee to differ? 1 Co 4-7, is ever present, to press him down under the weight of infinite obligations. Its fruit is lowliness of mind, meekness of temper, thankfulness in receiving reproof, forgetfulness of injury, readiness to be lightly regarded. No true greatness can there be without this deep-toned humility. This is he whom the king delighteth to honor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people, Matt 5-3, PSA 113-7, 8-. And high look, and a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin Proverbs 21-4. Another stamp of abomination upon pride. We cannot mistake the mind of God so continually declared. Yet so many shapes does this sin assume, that, until the Spirit of God shows a man to himself, he rejects the idea of any concern in it. Nay, he will be proud of his very pride, proud of a high spirit, counting a Christian mean and cowardly, who in the true spirit of the gospel, yields up his right to a stronger hand. But not only the haughtiness, but even the natural actions, the plowing of the wicked is sin. This is an hard saying, who can hear it? Joe 660 how can the plowing of the soil, in itself a duty, Gen 3:19, become a sin? The motive determines the act. The most natural actions are inculcated for Christian ends. They become therefore moral actions, good or bad according to their own motives. The man, who plows the soil, acknowledging God in his work, and seeking his strength and blessing, does it acceptably to the glory of God. It is essentially a religious action. But the wicked, who does the same work without any regard to God, for want of a godly end, his plowing is sin. His idleness is sin against a plain command, 2 3:10. His industry is the sin of ungodliness, putting God out of his own world. The substance of his act is good. But the corrupt principle defiles the very best actions, tit 1:15. Every thought, every imagination, of the natural heart, is unmixed evil, Gen 6-5. If the fountainhead be bitter, how can the waters be pure? Sin indeed defiles every motive in the Christian's heart. But here it is the substance of sin. In the one case it is infirmity of walk in the straight path. In the other, 
it is an habitual walk in a crooked path. With the wicked, his eating as well as his gluttony, his drinking as well as his drunkenness, his commerce, negotiation, and trafficking, as well as his covetousness, and inordinate love of the world, are all set down and reckoned by God for sins, and such sins as he must reckon for with God. Fearful indeed is his condition. Would that he could see it. Whether he prays, or neglects to pray, it is abomination. He cannot but sin, and yet he is fully accountable for his sin. To die, is to plunge into ruin. To live in unregeneracy is even worse, it is daily heaping up wrath against the day of wrath, Rom 2-5. Ought he then to leave his duties undone? The impotency of man must not prejudice God's authority, nor diminish his duty. What then ought he to do? Let him learn the absolute necessity of the vital change, ye must be born again, Joe 3-7. The leper taints everything that he touches. But let him seek to the great physician, whose word is sovereign healing, Matt 8-3, whose divine blood cleanses from every spot, 1 Joe 1-7. His nature once cleansed, his works will be clean. His thoughts and principles, all will be for the glory of God, all acceptable to God. From a commentary on Proverbs, reprinted by the Banner of Truth Trust. P.O. Box 621, Carlisle, Pennsylvania 17013 USA, 717-249-5747 info at banneroftruth.org. Or 3 Murrayfield Road, Edinburgh, EH126EL, UK. Dash. Charles Bridges, 1794-1869, was one of the leaders of the Evangelical Party in the Church of England in the mid-1800s. He was vicar of Old Newton, Suffolk, from 1823-1849, and later of Weymouth and Hinton Martell in Dorset. Bridges is known for both literary works such as the Christian ministry and his expositions, which include Ecclesiastes and Psalm 119 as well as Proverbs. Delivered on Sabbath morning, December 5, 1858, by the C.H. Spurgeon, Compel Them to Come In, in the New Park Street Pulpit Sermons, Volume 5, London, Passmore and Alabaster, 1859 at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens. C. H. Spurgeon. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Luke 14 23. I feel in such a haste to go out and obey this commandment this morning, by compelling those to come in who are now tarrying in the highways and hedges, that I cannot wait for an introduction, but must at once set about my business. Here then, O ye that are strangers to the truth as it is in Jesus, hear then the message that I have to bring you. Ye have fallen, fallen in your father Adam, ye have fallen also in yourselves, by your daily sin and your constant iniquity, you have provoked the anger of the Most High and as assuredly as you have sinned, so certainly must God punish you if you persevere in your iniquity, for the Lord is a God of justice, and will by no means spare the guilty. But have you not heard, hath it not long been spoken in your ears, that God, in His infinite mercy, has devised a way whereby, without any infringement upon His honor, He can have mercy upon you, the guilty and the undeserving? To you I speak, and my voice is unto you, O sons of men, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, hath descended from heaven, and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Begotten of the Holy Ghost, he was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived in this world a life of exemplary holiness, and of the deepest suffering, till at last he gave himself up to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And now the plan of salvation is simply declared unto you, 
whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. For you who have violated all the precepts of God, and have disdained His mercy and dared His vengeance, there is yet mercy proclaimed, for whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, whosoever cometh unto him he will in no wise cast out, for he is able also to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Now all that God asks of you, and this he gives you, is that you will simply look at his bleeding dying son, and trust your souls in the hands of him whose name alone can save from death and hell. Is it not a marvelous thing? that the proclamation of this gospel does not receive the unanimous consent of men? One would think that as soon as ever this was preached, that whosoever believeth shall have eternal life, every one of you, casting away every man his sins and his iniquities, would lay hold on Jesus Christ, and look alone to his cross. But alas! Such is the desperate evil of our nature, such the pernicious depravity of our character, that this message is despised, the invitation to the gospel feast is rejected, and there are many of you who are this day enemies of God by wicked works, enemies to the God who preaches Christ to you today, enemies to Him who sent His Son to give His life a ransom for many. Strange I say it is that it should be so, yet nevertheless it is the fact, and hence the necessity for the command of the text, compel them to come in. Children of God, ye who have believed, I shall have little or nothing to say to you this morning, I am going straight to my business, I am going after those that will not come those that are in the byways and hedges, and God going with me, it is my duty now to fulfill this command, compel them to come in.